0: Welcome to the Digital Transformation of Business podcast, brought to you by Hughes Arn.
1: Hello, everybody, and it's good to be back with you here. This is Mike Tippetts, and I'm here with my good friends, Curtis Campbell and Chuck Keeler. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, retail trends to watch
0: in 2020. That's right. We have an article from uh, Retail Dive. It goes over a number of different things that we might anticipate in the upcoming several months.
1: The opening here right in the second paragraph stores need e-commerce and e-commerce needs stores. I love that. That sucked
0: me right into the article. Yeah, and a number of these points touch on that and explain why that's the case. And it seems to be that it's the case now more than ever as online shopping finds its way as brick and mortar tries to go through its journey and survive. It's it's a pretty interesting article.
1: Yeah, I found it quite interesting. I'll tell you they talk here about this combination of things and how you see direct to consumer brands, you know, on the rise, things like the Casper mattresses and some of these other items. And I and I was struck, you know, clothing and a few items we've all been comfortable buying online for a long time, although I think to a degree, my parents would still like to try things on in a store and so forth. But I really believe the millennials are a generation that are truly ready to make major purchases. When I, I consider a mattress a major purchase, I, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. they're ready. They're willing to make that purchase online, and trust that if they don't like it, they can return it. They're going to be able to return it.
2: I don't think I can do it yet. I just I don't think I'm there. I'm telling you just offhand, I, I bought a fridge online about two weeks ago. Having never seen it in Ever, person. Never never seen it in person, never nice. touched it, just read the reviews and just bought it online. So and it worked out great. So delivery, they picked up the old one. Never even talked to a human being except for coordinating the delivery. My brother just bought a mattress
0: that came I think it was from Purple or one of those big names that are becoming really popular. And it came to his house, rolled up, clipped the cords, it unfolded itself. He tested it out. He has a period of time to try it and send it back. If he has to send it back, some guys are going to come pick it up. And I think that, that right there, that guarantee, that risk-free experience was enough for him to say, yeah, I'll give it a try. I don't need to borrow a truck. I don't need to go to the downtown. I don't need to um, worry about hauling this thing up the stairs. So, yeah, I think the younger generation has become, well, maybe they've always been comfortable with with this sort of experience
2: because they know that it's not the end of the world if it doesn't work out right away. I will tell you, though, this whole concept of buying something online, they're extremely sensitive to the cost of shipping. So if they see an opportunity to try something, then they, they probably will. But if it costs them 10 bucks in shipping, they're going to definitely rethink that. So this whole concept, this whole notion of free shipping is critical to that same idea. So, the, yeah, millennials, they want the free shipping. And they want the free return shipping, They want the too. free
0: return shipping. Yeah. So number one, the, the first thing they talk about in this article is pure play retail is less pure. And by pure play retail, this means traditional brick and mortar, right? Yeah, I think so. And it says... Direct-to-consumer brands have taught pure-play physical retailers that the e-commerce experience is just as essential to their strategy as storefronts are. That's led to a blurring of channels and even stalwart brick-and-mortar retailers like Costco finally building out e-commerce. Then it says, Perhaps best evidenced by Nike's commitment to its direct strategy, which came to a head with the November announcement that it would stop selling on Amazon?
1: Well, I think there's two things or maybe even three in play there. First of all, it's absolutely a fact. If you're going to be a successful brand, you have to be good at both. Yeah, You have to be good at uh, physical and you have to be good at online. So there's no question right there, and that's the blurring. The second thing I'd say is Costco, in my mind, is one exception to what I believe is the future Of brick and mortar retail. I think brick and mortar retail is going to be a combination of physical and online, but you're going to see the department store shrink down. It's not going to try to have every single item and every single size and every single color. It's going to be come here. To pick it up, come here if you feel like you want to touch the fabric and come here to return. So it's going to exist. And the only thing I say is, Costco breaks my mental model there a little bit because Costco is all about, you know, you take your cart, you go down the aisles and you're picking up seven packs of everything and so forth. And then the last thing I'll say about that Nike comment there, and they touch on it a little bit later in the article, but Nike is going direct and coming off Amazon because. They don't like the reputation that Amazon's starting to have. And we can touch on that a little further. But Nike wants to be pure. Nike wants you to know when you buy, you're getting Nike product built in a Nike factory by Nike to Nike standards and
0: not some corner in the city knockoff. Yeah. And it says that this sort of thing that's happening has primed customers to look directly to brands for product rather than to retailers they often sell through. So for example, Nike, you're gonna to go to Nike.com, perhaps, before you go to some
2: other .com or another brick and mortar. Well, yeah, and I mean, just the notion of today's shoppers have perpetuated this notion of people, when they're gonna buy something, whether it's a pair of shoes, a pair of socks, a refrigerator, a TV, they're gonna have looked it up online all day long. People have been doing this for years. And to tip your point at just a minute ago, you're seeing that department store footprint shrink significantly. In fact, for those who follow our blog, there's actually gonna be an article that hits on Friday, I believe, that I penned, which is talking about how Nordstrom and Kohl's and Target are all thriving and posting huge wins in this exact area. I mean, Kohl's for example, is experimenting with taking a 90,000 square foot store and paring it down to 60,000 square feet. And some people are like, well, what are you going to do with the extra 30,000 square feet? Well, they said, we're going to actually turn this area over to a complimentary retailer. So in fact, I believe they've signed a deal with Aldi to be able to put up a little pop-up grocery store inside of Kohl's in 10 locations. And so in the hopes of what this is going to do for them is that it's now you're going to Kohl's to pick up groceries and that they're not responsible to carry those grocery items and have to worry about those soft line goods, but they're able to say, okay, come into a Kohl's, get your groceries, and hey, here's a promotion for a sweatshirt. It's really cold outside, buy this coat as you leave. And so you're seeing that paradigm shift of how a department store is actually being viewed in the marketplace. It's an interesting paradigm, I guess, because first of all, I'll say
1: this with that extra 30,000 square feet, put a restaurant, we can always use more restaurants. <laughs> I'll just say that out loud. But I'll take that to the next level. J.C. Penney took a store in Hearst, Texas, which is not too far, half hour, 25 minutes from their corporate headquarters. And they took it all the way down to the concrete, stripped the whole thing down to the walls and the floors, and rebuilt it using their new CEO, Jill Soto's vision. And it is extremely open. And it has two, one on each floor, kind of barrister coffee bars in there. You'd go to JCPenney to get a coffee? No. But if the wife's shopping for the kids, if the husband's shopping for some things and the family wants to sit down. But when you go
2: in there, it's, it's much more open. Look at, I mean, I know it's not a retail, necessarily a retail brand, but look at what Capital One did with the cafes. Absolutely. I mean, holy cow. When they first launched that idea, people thought they were insane. And now that concept has taken off. You see it in commercials now and everything. What they're all trying to do is turn what we might consider something of a commodity
1: into a destination. Yeah, or an experience.
0: Yeah, an experience is probably even a better way to put it. I went to the new Apple store on Fifth Avenue in New York City uh, a couple weeks ago, and they have a significant portion of their footprint dedicated to experience. In fact, the whole thing is really kind of an experience, but they have little boxes and they'll do little tutorials and demonstrate huge screen And had a whole section on one end that was all glassed in. And you would go in there and experience audio, great audio. So they had the the speakers and different things. And you can experience their technology and how the sound bounces off the walls and how you would have set it up in whatever room you want to. And everywhere you went, they removed the cash registers that were there before. Everywhere you went, you're having a little bit of an experience. And with no pressure to buy, no pressure, we tried multiple products, new products, tried AirPod Pros. They let us put fresh pairs into our ears and demonstrate how that works. And it was, it was fantastic. It was a way too. it was almost a, a destination, like you said, for a tourist to go spend an hour in a store that you have no intention of buying anything. Turns out we were with a small group of people and about half of us ended up buying something.
1: <laughs> well, you know, shout out to things that we've talked about previously in some detail, but in order for that to be successful, the employee has to be prepared, oh, absolutely. has to be trained, has to get the vision. Because if you're an employee that thinks your job is just to restock the shelves in an Apple store or in a JCPenney where you are trying to create an experience, you're not prepared to deliver no. what the vision
2: is. Yeah, that article that's going to hit on Friday it touches on exactly that. It's an employee's job, our good employee's job, in these companies that are thriving, is to sell the experience. You can have all these different tools and initiatives going on in your store, but if your employees are not selling that experience, if they don't know what they need to do to sell that experience, the technology is all for naught.
0: This leads us into the next point that this article makes. It says the purpose of stores changes. So we're going to see that in 2020. They say both direct-to-consumer brands and legacy retailers are reevaluating the purpose of a store, which I think we've known all along, but it goes into more detail. It says, all told, digitally native brands are set to open 850 stores in the next five years, according to a report from real estate firm JLL. This is interesting. They're talking about brands that are all online. They are not brick-and-mortar. They are web... Based brands. Warby Parker, Bonobos, you know, places that you
1: envision them purely online. And now they're opening as many as 850 stores in the next five years. I would bet a chunk of money that none of those stores are going to be 20,000 square feet. No, no, you know, no, no, no. They're going to be darn near pop-ups, Yeah, right? They're going to get minimal footprint, have that experience, have that position that they're learning they need to have but they're not gonna be trying to open up department store size
2: buildings. No, and there's other retailers that are learning that same concept. What Nordstrom's doing with these pop-up shops and what Target's doing with influencer marketing, it's all huge. I mean, Nordstrom gets repeat business by doing these month-long promotions where it's just a new designer that pops up in their stores, and so you're enticed to go back in. Target does the same thing every week and with 10 different designers, whether it's the new Magnolia Home stuff or whatever. You're going to walk into a Target and be like, oh, my gosh, I didn't know that. And so you're going to keep going back. Keeping it fresh, right? Yeah, keeping it fresh. Now, they make a comment in
1: here that I was intrigued by. They say it's not this idea that onlines are going to be opening some physical stores, you know, to your point, Chuck. They say it's not just a trend. It's actually necessity for survival and there's a marketing guy at retail next that said hey they're being pressed into doing this because the cost of customer acquisition is too high when you're online only yes
0: man that flies in the face of what i would have assumed or believed same here same here and is it because of the crowded market too many competitors online? I'm not really sure where that... uh, Yeah, that, that might be an interesting... We might even want to try to reach out to
1: Ray Hartgen and see if we can't get him on the show because I think that's very, very interesting that the cost of consumer or customer acquisition online is so high that they want to open a brick and mortar. That's very interesting. Could it be
0: that some brick and mortar retail locations are there not so much to turn a profit from foot traffic, but to acquire more customers that the profitability of the square footage of the store is no longer as important as it used to be because you want the foot traffic if you're in a busy city if you're on the street corner if you want brand visibility if you want people to try get their hands on these things is that happening at all
2: well i mean you can see what target's doing with these urban stores Those little ones? Yeah, those little ones. I mean, I've been into a number of them now. There's one down in Provo, Utah. There's one in, in fact, they're actually opening a larger one in Times Square, but they're going upstream. They realize they're missing out on a good chunk of the audience that doesn't know that they carry the type of goods that they want because there's not a store. Target obviously figured this out and and is opening a marquee store in Times Square, but it's not going to be your typical Target. I believe they used to be called City Targets, but they don't like that name. They're just Target, but they're smaller footprints of the essential items that they find based on geographics and demographics, what they sell the most of. And then you walk in and pick it up. Times Square is what made me ask the question, because I see some of these stores that
0: they've got to have a huge lease price on all of these storefronts. Yet a lot of them are there year after year. And perhaps it's because you get so much foot traffic, you're going to acquire customers. I think there's some relationship there
1: to the gross margin of the products they sell i think you know apple they're going to absolutely be about the experience compared to a clothing retailer and some of that so i I think there's a relationship there i don't know what the direct correlation is or how tight it is and curtis to your point target is they're going with these smaller footprints and some of these different things but they're in these high rent districts they're they're putting the products out there that are more high-end more market specific but Chuck, to your original question about profitability per square foot, I think that's absolutely still a very strong metric that they monitor. They have to. They cannot, they cannot get into the business of just saying, well, we're going to put up stores for advertising or for purely for experience. There's got to be a correlation to pushing some business through. So both, maybe. Yeah, both.
0: I think so. Uh, one of the points says, Boppis packs a punch. This was interesting. that This holiday season, this past holiday, 2019 – shoppers took advantage of Bop's services in order to save money. Additionally, 49% of customers stated that in-store pickup is quicker than at-home delivery. That's an advantage when delivery is going through a time of upheaval.
1: Well, I agree with that. This I'll say though, I've tried grocery, buy online pickup a few times. And the thing that has been holding me back is when I go online to my favorite grocer and I start picking things It says, okay, pick a time to come and get it. And it has been too far out in the future. I can't, I want to be able to go pick it up within two hours. Mm-hmm. I understand you're going to have to have an associate walk the store and pick up the items and so on and so forth. But I think early on, if I remember right, it was almost like, okay, yeah, you can come get this tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I think they're learning. I think they're developing the systems and getting to where they can do it better. But if I can't pick it up within two hours, I'll just go, okay, well, have somebody bring it to I'm
0: me. I'm the exact same way with electronics. If I go onto Best Buy and I want something, I want to buy it online and pick it up in store. And they're much better with that because it's one item, two items, whatever, and it's within a smaller footprint. My wife has the complete opposite experience as you, and... I think you and I are on the same page as far as a Walmart pickup order or a grocery store pickup order. My wife, she loves having a time slot. She selects a time tomorrow or the next day when the kids are at school or after she's gone to the gym. She likes to plan her day ahead and she likes to order 200 items, and it's something that she can do in bed the night before. And to her, that's everything. That has changed her life. She's looking for the convenient time, not the quick pick up the time that's an hour or two away, the time during her busy day that's going to make sense for her. So I think you're right. They do need to kind of improve that process because there are a number of people who feel like we Mm -hmm, do, mm -hmm. but just to share the other side of that.
1: Well, and I don't think I've ever been in the position where I'm making those purchases as that family plan. The staples. Right, the staples. I'm usually going, hey, you know what? I think I
2: want to barbecue something tonight. I want to place an order for some items and go get it real, you know, reasonably quick. So. Yeah, yeah. For me, you're seeing how many retailers are actually placing a major focus on this mm-hmm. as a key part of their strategy. I mean, Target, they made Boppis available at 1,100 stores in 2019. In one year? In one year. Wow. 1,100 stores. They trained up everybody to be able to get it ready and go and have curbside pickup at 1,100 stores in 2019. That, to me, is mind-blowing. And the thing is, I do Boppis enough at Target. Where I go to a Target and you walk up to that customer service thing, whether I do curbside or buy online, pickup in store, they have these little beacons that the employees that are wearing it, it literally sounds like a car horn and it's going off like we it's unbelievable how often it's going off and they have a team of people that are dedicated to nothing but buy online, pickup in store and curbside pickup. And they have five or six people that are on the clock doing absolutely nothing but that. And I think there's a real future there.
1: You know, I read recently about some, going back to my restaurant things, and maybe it's just because I'm a food guy, but there are people opening basically kitchens. They're not opening a restaurant. They're opening a kitchen, and they're producing food that is only going to be available through DoorDash and Grubhub and some of these places. And I wonder if the time's going to come where— Maybe that's where that 30,000 square feet that you talked about at the beginning, Curtis, you know what? We're going to reduce our footprint of general foot traffic space, but this back corner back here is going to be dedicated to prepping and getting stuff ready for people to pull up and pick up. And again, you know, I harp on this because of my passion for it, but if that employee doesn't understand that system, doesn't react when that buzzer goes off, doesn't go out, smile, take care of that customer...
2: It's too easy to change. Yep. It's just too easy to change. Well, there's a, I mean, there's a stat I read yesterday that, what, 68% of today's shoppers will pay more, in fact, up to 17% more for a great experience. Yeah, and that number's
1: growing. It used to be 5 or 6% yep. more. They'll pay 17%, 17% more. 17% for a good experience.
0: We have two grocery stores from my house that are equal distance from my house. And one charges a fee for their pickup, and they have more expensive products. One has cheaper products, no fee. The experience at the more expensive one is often much faster, much more friendly. much. So guess which one we end up going to? Absolutely. It says in the article, Bopis services may benefit traditional brick-and-mortar retailers, speaking of Curtis's example with Target, by cutting down on last-minute expenses and turning stores into a competitive advantage over online retailers, including Amazon. And in November interview with CNBC, Target CEO Brian Cornell noted that retailers costs dropped 90% when customers utilized BOPIS. So there's another answer that we might not have anticipated a couple years ago. Brick and mortar stores, BOPIS, now they're reducing their costs when it comes to the last mile expenses and getting shipping to your door. And so there's a lot of incentive to give that wonderful experience, to give the many options, to take it out to your car. It's going to require more labor. It's going to require more resources and overhead. At the same time, you're going to save a ton of money. You think 90 percent, he
1: says, you know, and he says it it costs drop 90 percent when the customers utilize Boppus. Do you think that's
2: all about shipping costs, though? I mean, is it? I think it has something to do with staffing levels, too. Yeah. And I apologize for cutting you off, but I think that if they capitalize on Boppas and they can see how much traffic is dedicated to just Boppas, they can optimize and say, hey, during this time of the day, no one's buying shoes. I don't need to have a full time person in shoes. Mm. Or during this time, nobody's buying electronics okay, because yeah. it's one o'clock in the afternoon on a Wednesday. I don't need to have three people at the electronics desk. Well, it's been a long standing fact with quick service restaurants, you
1: yeah. know, McDonald's, Wendy's, Burger King, Hardy's, and the like. 80% of the traffic goes through the drive-thru. Yeah. 80%. You could almost say, you know what, I'm going to close my doors and just be a drive-thru. I think retail is going to start to see that. There, People are going to want to just pull up and pick up, pull up and pick up and keep going.
0: Another point that the article makes I thought was really fascinating was about secondhand apparel. It says it anticipates that in 2020 apparel will struggle except for secondhand apparel. The one part of the industry that may prove to be the segment's saving grace, at least temporarily, is secondhand clothing.
1: I, this is another millennial thing. I, <laughs> I, I listen. I'm, I will wear something until it falls off my body, but <laughs> I cannot buy something used. I, I, I just, it's not my nature. It's not my, it's not my thing. But every third commercial I've seen recently, Poshmark. And some of these places, Plato's Closet, mm-hmm. Plato's Closet's been around for a long time here in, in this area, so it's there. And I, th- I, again, I think it's a generation thing. These are men and women who will stay at an Airbnb. I'm good with the rental properties, VRBO, but the idea that I'm going to come to your house and rent, rent your, this room, rent your third bedroom, and share or something. a kitchen with you, and share a kitchen, and you know, no, nah, that's that's not going to work for Mike. But it's a generation thing, and I think it's a cost-saving thing. And again, you know, like I said, I buy something, and I wear it till it falls off. So the idea of secondhand to me, I think some, some of these folks, I think Poshmark exists for people who buy something, wear it once or twice, then they want to move it on and go get something else. Well, it's, not even
2: just, it's not even just clothes, though. It's like, oh, I bought all this crap for my kids for Christmas. They haven't touched it all. It's brand new, pretty much. I'm going to sell it on Poshmark. It's the new form of uh, your local classifieds. And the previous way of
0: doing the secondhand clothing would be like a thrift store, some sort of yard sale experience. However, now large retailers and Nordstrom, these other different department stores, they're going to be giving part of their store space for these partnerships with these secondhand companies. And so now you go in there, you know that it's been professionally cleaned, that the standards are very high. You're not just wearing something that somebody donated or gave away after wearing it a hundred times. I think for the younger crowd who might be more inclined to more drawn to specific brands, more fancy stuff, more stuff. That's maybe higher quality, more trendy. If they have to pay full price, they're going to be super limited. Their, their budgets are limited and they go in, they could say, okay, I will buy this backpack it was previously used. I can't really tell it was used. It's very lightly used. I'm paying half the price of the retail.
1: Yeah, and then the article touches on another aspect, too, and it's this whole eco-friendly, hey, look, you know what? Rather than it sitting in my closet collecting dust because I don't want to use it anymore, I'm going to put it out there. And, hey, I'm going to buy that so we didn't have to produce another thing. So there's an angle there. And, you know, when you said professionally cleaned and stuff, Chuck, you reminded me, you know what? I buy used cars. I I do, you know, for me, everything I drive is basically a commuter car or a commuter vehicle. So I buy used cars. So I guess it's just a paradigm thing, candidly. There's a point in here in this article, in this section about clothing. It says that in 1987, the consumer allocated about 5.9% of their spending to apparel. But by 2017, that number had decreased to 3.1%. I I, I'd like to know where that money's being spent now.
2: Consumer electronics or travel or experiences. Food. I think they're paying for experiences. Gone are the days of just going on a date to a dinner and a movie. You're going to dinner and you're doing some experience. I think their I think their social budget has eaten up some so of So we're their talking about the, co- the top golfs and Yeah, the... top golfs and stuff like that. Okay. Like, you know, okay. you're starting to see, because yeah. I mean t- I mean look at Topgolf, right? You go there for an hour and it costs you seventy five bucks. So you, know, you need to take five or six friends so it doesn't cost you. <laughs> you can share that out, but yeah. No, I, I don't have any friends. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <good. laughs>
0: now, none of us here in this office, we have everybody who works here, none of us can claim to be fashion experts. <laughs> so we're not exactly the people that these apparel companies are catering to. So I think they are definitely trying to understand their audience and cater to that audience that really isn't middle-aged male, corporate, yeah. office worker.
1: You know, and here we sit, three guys. I imagine if we had a woman in here or two with us, they might, they might challenge us on this idea of maybe they do want to turn their wardrobe over a little more often. And that plays to a, buying something less expensive, right? You know, wear it a couple of times. And if you're tired of it, you're not like, oh man, I paid $300 for that. I need to wear it more or longer. It's, you add that to the, hey, I could turn it over on the secondhand market
0: and and you may have something there. Yeah, I'd be interested to see where where that goes.
1: You know, one of the next things this article touches on <laughs> if you're in retail, the great Satan which is Amazon.
0: Yeah. They talk about <laughs> Amazon
1: losing its halo and they talk about Amazon exploding. And when they said this in here about getting into the transportation business, I don't know if I'm the only one, but it seems to me like I am seeing Amazon
2: branded trucks Everywhere. from semis down to van size yes, everywhere. Oh, and you fly to a lot of major airports, and you're seeing 767s with the Prime logo on the side of it. That is crazy to me. And I'm impressed. Way to go,
1: Jeff and team. But wow, it's mind-boggling to me to say, you know, UPS and FedEx exist. They've been at this for 50 years. They've polished this, perfected this, done this, and you want to jump into
2: that business. That's crazy. It's just crazy to me. To me, it's just a—it's an opportunity for them just to own the entire process from start to finish so they can control their costs. They can control the variables much more than they think they can or than it's perceived that they can by using a third party. But if Bezos and his crew can own the thing from soup to nuts, perhaps that's a way to grow their revenue that much more. Who knows? I don't know. But I, mean, I think there's an evil group of leprechauns or something like that that's figuring out how Amazon keeps growing and doing the right things and making the right moves. And, and I'm sure they have failed a lot along the way, but we just don't hear about it because everything else they seem to do, despite the fact that every retailer seems to hate them, seem to make the right moves. I believe very
1: strongly in something Henry Ford was famous for talking about, and that's specialization. Do what you do, do it well, and then work with somebody who does the other thing well. I'm not quite worth what Bezos is, but so, you know, (laughs) so I I won't argue with him and I won't say he's wrong. But what I will say is I think it's a dangerous place. Also, the article talks a little bit about risks. And if you're running trucks all over America now, you're going to be involved in accidents and you're going to have liabilities and things. But I think that Amazon, they're exiting that whether you want to call it a honeymoon or a child or, you know, newbie stage, they're moving into that awkward adolescent stage as a business. And I think they're going to try things just like adolescent kids do. They're going to try to stretch their wings and they're going to learn what works and what doesn't. I look back at Apple. Apple went through this, right? You know, 1984, when they launched the the Macintosh, it was, ooh, wow, you know, it's crazy. It's cool. They can't do anything wrong. Then they went through a period where, you know, they thought that they could just produce anything with an Apple logo. And, you know, I'm talking about the PowerPC days. And they went through their awkward phase and they came out on the other side, this beautiful Butterfly that we see now with the experienced stores and so on and so forth. And I think if you're smart and you work hard and do things which obviously a lot of these companies are doing, that they, they will survive and they'll come out. But I think we're we're gonna see, talking specifically about Amazon, I think you're gonna see Amazon go through a few years of some awkwards. They're trying things and I and I and I applaud them for that. The stores, you know, the Amazon, Amazon stores, goes, yeah. Amazon Go, you know, that whole bit. They're helping the industry. They'll run into some, some hurdles and some failures along the way, but I, I applaud them, but I do think they're going into their adolescent, their awkward stage. The other thing I'd say, and we touched on this at the outset, but the article here at this point, and it kind of talks about one of the challenges that Amazon has is they basically opened their doors and said, hey, if you want to sell online, we can help you do it. We can do all the infrastructure and so on and so forth, and we're going to get a little piece Small, but a little piece of everything. Well, then all of a sudden now you've got people selling stuff up there that are counterfeits or that are not a good quality. And do you want to be associated with that? And what they're seeing is brands like Nike going. You know what? We're not going to be available on Amazon because I don't want anybody worrying that the Nike they bought was counterfeit or not.
0: Just as Amazon has been disrupting the rest of the industry, we're going to see that the rest of industry is going to disrupt. Amazon in turn. And it's going to kind of go back and forth in a way that hopefully will create a healthy balance between everything. And I think that that's one of the big points of this article is that every sector of the retail industry and the various retail industries is having to adapt, having to change, having to reinvent.
1: Yeah. And I think that's a positive. I really do. I think the assumption that we can just do the same thing we've always done and continue to grow and continue to succeed is stifling. It's non-innovative. If the large department store has to have an online presence, has to reduce its footprint, has to formulate new ways of doing business. And I'm pro-employment. I don't want this change to mean people don't have jobs or can't get jobs. I want it to mean they have opportunities to get new jobs, new kinds of jobs. Sure. And again, coming back to Okay, so my local department store shrank from 200,000 square feet down to 40,000 square feet. Does that mean they need fewer people? Not necessarily. Maybe instead of 40 people that have to stock shelves and man departments all day or staff departments all day, now they need 20 of those people to be shuttling out to the— consumers who've pulled up to pick up stuff and they need to have a smile on their face and they need to interact and be prepared to represent the brand in a positive fashion. I,
2: I think it's all good. Some QSRs are figured out the same thing. I mean, you walk into an In-N-Out burger and there's like 25 people in that kitchen. That's right. That's yeah, right. I mean, it's, it's complete mayhem to the unknown, right? But every single person has a very, very specific job. I'm the guy that cranks the fry wheel. The other guy is the one that <laughs> cleans out the fry Basin. I think as long as people are trained the way that they need to and they're engaged and they can sell that experience, that's going to be crucial to these trends, right? All these trends we're talking about are completely worthless if they don't have employees to sell the vision. Some positive news here towards the end of the article is said, and this is talking about
0: department stores. The past holiday, half of the 189.6 million people who shopped during the Thanksgiving Black Friday weekend through Black Friday weekend visited at least one department store. So it's not all gloom and doom for any part of this industry. I I think we're looking pretty healthy uh, across the board. It does mention that new retail concepts are coming about, like Snowfields and Neighborhood Goods, who tout themselves as the quote, new department store, end quote. So a lot to look forward to in uh, 2020 in the retail.
1: Yeah. As I wrapped up reading this and was thinking about the conversation we're going to have, some conclusions or some thoughts that I had were, of course, brick and mortar is a necessity. Yep. It'll change. It's going to change and it's going to adapt to the new reality of shopping and, and the consumer, but it's not going away. I also think it's important to think about the baby boomer generation. When we talk about millennials, and by sheer volume, again, baby boomers are moving into that phase where they're starting to pass, and so forth. But these are men and women who who have a pretty good disposable income, right? Pretty right. good, you know, pretty good strength. So let's not get lost in trying to make sure we're ready for. The millennials and the younger generation, let's, let's get there. And then I think retail needs to do, going back to what I was saying a minute ago about specialization, careful not to try and be everything to everybody. Do what you do. Do it really, really well. I think we've watched some retailers who have tried to bring on hard, good lines and not had that work out well for them. I mean, I would. how hard would you laugh if Best Buy started carrying clothing? Right. I mean, even if it was athletic wear for the audiophile, it's not the thing. Right. And so I think we need to all think about that. And then a couple of other thoughts were everything that we're talking about here is there's a technology angle to it. And I'm the first one to stand up and say, do not implement technology for the sake of technology. Find out what you want to accomplish and then go get technology to help you do it. But there is one underlying, two underlying things that I would say from a technology standpoint. First, you're going to have to have a network connection. You're going to have to have connectivity into the cloud or for your customers to use in your locations or what have you. So you're going to need to have a highly reliable, strong network connection that is managed and secure and all the things that you could spend an entire podcast talking about. And so I would encourage people listening to the podcast to think about that and to think about the idea of going and getting someone who specializes in that. And then the second thing is the need to talk to your employees, whether that is in terms of training or in terms of informing or in terms of, you know, whatever. We have, we have a video out on our YouTube channel where I, I talk about Ellen, the CEO who wakes up to bad news at 2 a.m. and how she goes about planning and preparing and how she had prepared ahead of time to communicate. And I think it's just critical that you have these kind of capabilities in place. So th- those were some of my final thoughts as I wrapped up on that article. And I've said this before in, in articles, and I probably even said it on the podcast. Human nature is always to believe the bad, the negative, you know whatever. Oh, retail is dying, the, the store's going, like, no, it's not. It's changing. And if you can step out in front, and I hope that some of the conversations we have on this podcast help people realize that the future is very bright. There's a lot of opportunity and a lot going on in retail. And I'm I'm very, very positive and bullish on the opportunities that exist and excited about the future, to be perfectly honest. Well, I appreciate you gentlemen joining me again here in the studio. It's been a fantastic conversation. We've got a busy few weeks coming ahead of us, and I'm looking forward to the content and the guests that we're going to have. So thank you to the listeners. We appreciate you joining us and giving us a few minutes of your time. Have an awesome day.